Amen. Amen. This morning we turn again to Colossians 3 in verse 18 where we'll continue our, our mini-series, we'll call it, in the book of Colossians as we've studied through this book, and we're calling this the Christian home. Paul is going to address in verse 18 three pairs of relationships that are found in the Christian home. And we gave the overview of that last Sunday and considered the fact that the Christian home is under attack, both from the right and from the left. In the sexual revolution that's taking place, in gender euphoria, where men and women don't know what it means to be a man or a woman, the Bible, in a timeless truth way, speaks to the issue of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And now Paul is going to address the issue of marriage what is marriage about? What is the role that a wife takes and is responsible for as Paul speaks directly to wives? And what is the role that a husband takes in marriage? Listening to the voice of truth and not the voice in our culture and the many voices which try to speak to this issue, God alone decides and is decisive as to what our roles are. And we come under the headship of Christ and we bow to His supremacy and we acknowledge and then we move into the roles that God has assigned for us. Now as we look at verse 18 where Paul writes these words, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Many people have misinterpreted and misunderstood Paul's words here. <clears throat> They have assumed that what Paul is saying, which he is not, <clears throat> they assume Paul is saying that submission means spineless silence, passive resignation, and demeaning slavery to a husband, his every whim and his every compulsive desire. That is the furthest thing from the truth of what Paul is saying. <clears throat> but what does Paul mean here? What does it mean for a wife to come under the leadership of her husband? What does that look like and what does it not look like is the question. And so we want to go to God's Word and let God speak to us today in a timeless way where God who's the author and the creator of marriage. <clears throat> What's His purpose for marriage? Now, you young people, if you want to be married and looking to be married, have you asked the question, why was marriage even created? Did a group of men and women get together and say, hey, I've got an idea. Let's, let's do this thing called marriage. And, you know, it'd probably be right for the men to take the lead. And, and I think you women should take the role of submission under leadership. And we'll call it a family and have children. That's not what happened, beloved. God has ordained the institution of marriage, and God has decided for us how it functions within a Christian home. So let's consider, first of all, what does submission mean here? The word simply means a voluntary attitude of assuming responsibility. Now you can see this in the middle voice of the verb submit. It's a verb, it's in the middle voice. Now, you college people and high school people, you're in English right now. You, you probably know these voices with verbs. The active voice is where the subject is performing the action. For example, if I said, I moved the car, right? I, I performed the action, that's the subject. Passive voice is where this, the subject is being acted upon. The car was moved. The car is a subject, somebody else moved it. But the middle voice, 
The verb, the subject is both the experiencer, the agent, and the focus of the action. It would be illustrated like this. I moved myself. <clears throat> Three implications for wives in this middle voice. Number one, wives, God is calling you to move yourselves under the leadership of your husband. As a voluntary submission to the Lordship of Christ, He's calling you to move yourself voluntarily and acknowledge His leadership and then use your wisdom, your skill, your creativity, your brains, and everything you are in helping His leadership. And we're going to see that unfold a little bit later. Second implication, it is not based on your husband's performance. Now, I know you, you already get this. You know your husband is not the best leader on the planet, right? You know there's no such thing. You know that your husband has bad days, maybe bad weeks, maybe even a bad month when it comes to loving leadership toward his wife. Because it's a voluntary act of submission where Christ calls you to come under that leadership, it's not based on your husband's performance. It's based on the performance of Christ. And he's perfect. He's the perfect God-man. Third implication, your husband is not your Lord. He is not your Redeemer, and He's not your Savior, and you don't get your spiritual strength from your husband. And that will unfold a little later too. We are agents, we are instruments in the hands of a Redeemer to help strengthen one another, to exhort, to encourage, but you do not get your strength from your husband on earth, but from your husband in heaven. Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. So God is calling you, wives, not by mandate of your husband, not by your husband moving, making, reminding, or motivating you to take on this role. Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. The one, if you're a Christian, you've come under and said, He's my Lord, He's my Savior. I want to submit to His Lordship and His Word. He is calling you to voluntarily come under the leadership of your husband. So if anything, wives, you're not submitting to his tyranny. You're submitting to his love. Now how big is that, husbands? Do you make it hard for your wife to come under your leadership? Do you make it difficult? Because rather than smelling the aroma of Christ's love in your leadership, it's more like the tyranny of a heavy hand on her life. That is not Christ-like. That is not what God calls husbands to be. And so let us take the roles that God has assigned and understand that submission is what God is asking wives to do. He, he's telling wives, this is the role I've assigned for you and to come under the loving headship of your husband. And we'll see the reason and the purpose of that later. Number two, Submission must be fit in the Lord. Listen to Paul. Husbands or wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Ephesians 5 that we just read, as unto the Lord. And the word fit means proper, appropriate, suitable, even right. And here's some observations about that word. It is not fitting to submit to sin. 
If your husband asks you to falsify tax documents, you respectfully say no. If he asks you to be part of a scam that's illegal, you say no. If he asks you to do something contrary to the will of Christ, Jesus wins. When there's a conflict between will of husband and will of Christ, Jesus wins. It is not fitting to go against a clear declaration of Scripture and what God has told us to be and to do for the sake of husband. In your role of wife, you respectfully deny because Jesus is your Lord. Secondly, it is not fitting to submit to physical abuse. That's not right. That's not proper. 5.3 million cases, it is said, of domestic abuse each year. Now, in those numbers, there's some husband abuse, but that, that's very low. It's primarily male-to-female abuse. That is not Christianity. It's not Christ-like. And you never see Jesus abusing His bride. And sadly, there are men in that statistics who are Christians or claim to be Christians. That is not fitting. It's not right. It's not proper. And so uh, a sister's not called to remain submissive under physical abuse. That's not accidental. That is intentional and purposed. She is not to submit to that. Now, there have been occasions, you might well know, where a wife maybe has bruises all over her arms, but come to find out, it was because she was attacking her husband, and the husband just puts his hands up, and therefore she gets bruises. So, so we're not talking about it's okay to, to physically assault a husband either. But when a husband is assaulting his wife, it is not fitting to submit, and the church must not tolerate such activity at all. What is she to do? Get help immediately. If that is a believing husband, he is to be brought to repentance. If he does not repent, there's action to be taken in response to that. The first thing to do is not to immediately get out of the marriage. It's to immediately get help. And so you are, are not to stay in such a circumstance. And then thirdly, it is not fitting to submit to regular, routine, unrepentant, verbal abuse and attacks. Now why do I say routine and regular? Because if we all were to make it known right now, how many people in this room, at some point in time in your marriage, you said an unkind, even cruel thing to your spouse, at least once. I hope I'm not the only person in this room that has said something unkind that I wish I'd never said that I had to repent of. We're talking about repeated, routine, unrepentant verbal assault. Not the kind where the, the wife is following back or volleying back all the verbal assaults that she's getting and it's a problem in the marriage between two people, but where the husband is continually verbally assaulting wife. What does she do? Get help. Get help. From the church, the church has authority. We submit ourselves to the church in church membership to help and to bring one another to repentance. That's the first place. And if there needs to be other help outside of that, that God is placed in society for protection, then we move out to that help as well. 
And so let the church be clear. The church cannot, will not tolerate abuse because God will not tolerate such activity. And repentance is in order. Okay, now what does it look like to submit? What is the activity of submission? And what would that look like in the life of a wife when she assumes this role? Number three, then, is that submission is helping your husband. It is being active to help your husband because your husband needs help. Right? Let's turn to Genesis 2, and we're going to look at really what is the beginning of marriage and why marriage exists, who ordained it, God, and then what is it to be about as we look at the role right now of a wife helping her husband. In Genesis 1, we find creation account where each day God is unfolding what He did in creation in six literal 24-hour days. And on the sixth day, He created the animal kingdom and man and woman. On the seventh day in Genesis 2, 1, He rested. Now Genesis 2 then opens a window where we can look at a little more detail in day 6. Day 6. So we find in, in chapter 2... God brings all the animals to, to Adam so he can name them. But in verse 18, as we look at day 6, Genesis 2.18, we find that Eve has not yet been created. And this is what God says. He speaks into that context on day 6 and says this in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Every day God said about creation, it was good. The seventh day it was very good. But now on day six, He looks at Adam and says, something here is not good. Now the question is, why isn't it? Why isn't it good for Adam to be alone? And if it's not good for Adam to be alone, then is singleness not good? Right? If you were thinking that. Is singleness not good? Because it's not good for Adam to be alone. Now the fact of the matter, as you know, is that Adam was not lonely. And he wasn't alone because God was with him. He walked with God in the garden. He had fellowship and communion with God. And God was the supplier and the satisfier of his soul. This is pre-fall, before sin ever entered or death entered to the world. So single people... You're not alone in two ways. You have Christ, your Redeemer. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you have Jesus Christ, your follower. He is the satisfier. He is the one that sticketh closer than a brother. He is your friend, by His own words in John 15. Furthermore, you have the church of the living God. Jesus would speak to Peter in the Gospels and say to Peter, No man has left father, mother, brother, sister, lands, houses. But what he will gain what? Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, lands, and houses. In this life, and in the life to come, eternal life. So what's Jesus mean? He's speaking in the Jewish context that when you become a Christian in first century church, what happens? You lost those things. You were ostracized from your family. Your brothers and sisters... Being Jews and non-Christians, you lost them. Your mother and father turned against you. And often you lost your land, which was handed down by 
generationally by the Jews. What's Jesus saying? Becoming a Christian means you gain the family of God. You gain mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, and all that they own, in a sense, becomes yours in the sense of loving and helping you. And so, single people, you're not alone. You're just on a different pathway than married people. And you may be on that pathway in the future, or if you stay single because it's a gift of God or for other reasons, you have all that is necessary for fulfillment and living the life that God calls you to be by pursuing Christ, your Lord and Savior. All right, so then, what does it mean then that it's not good for Adam to be alone if he really wasn't alone and he wasn't lonely? God is going to answer that question in three ways that we'll look at. Now, we're talking about the wife's submission helping her husband. God's first answer to it not being good that Adam is alone is found in verse 18. So what is the answer? I will make and help meet for him. So what God is saying is not good for Adam to be alone as it relates to the design and purpose of marriage. This is not good. Because there's something Adam cannot be alone when it comes to God's design and purpose for marriage. So the first answer is, I will make and help meet for him. The word help means to aid, to assist. The Hebrew word for him means to correspond to Adam. The ESV uses the word fit. The NIV uses the word suitable. And meet expresses the exact same meaning. Meet appropriate suitable. It's not good for Adam to be alone because he needs someone that will be suitable and that corresponds to Adam. Now somebody may be thinking here, I'm I'm okay with help, right? You men may say, I I need help in the kitchen. I like to eat a good home-cooked meal. I need help with the clothing. I need somebody to wash my clothes. And I need help with cleaning the house. But let's notice what's going on here. Adam and Eve are vegan. They don't eat meat. Nobody eats meat to Genesis chapter 9 because death is not in the world yet. There is no need to cook. You just go to the garden that God had dressed for them and you take the fruit and the vegetables and you eat it. Adam, go pick your own fruit. I mean, that's what he could do. There's no preparation here. They don't even wash it. It's all clean. There's no sin in the world. There's no bacteria or viruses yet. They just pluck and eat it. There's no kitchen. Guess what? They're both naked. Nobody's washing clothes. Nobody's going to, to, the, to the rivers that came into gar, the Garden of Eden and washing clothes. They don't have any clothes on yet. And they're not ashamed. We find that in the last verse of Genesis 2. Thirdly, they don't own a house. They just live in the garden. They're outdoorsmen. So whatever God means here, He does not mean that kind of help. Now, I understand we've got to eat and we've got to work through how we're going to eat, who's going to do the cooking. And men, you can cook like they can. You can wash your own clothes at times. But whatever that joint effort is, that's got to be done. But here, none of that exists yet. None of that exists. So God means something totally different than that kind of help, which that, that is okay. You know. And sisters, if you want to go mow the grass, go for it. I mean, there's, there's no... Role limitation there, right? So that's the first answer. I will make a help meet for him. And the word help is the same God word God uses for himself toward us in Psalm 
33.20 O Israel, wait thou upon the Lord. He is our help and our shield. God takes the word that He uses for Himself to us and He says, wives are to be that kind of help. Now I ask you men, in what category of your life would you say you don't need the help of God? If you're honest, now if you're full of pride, think you can do life on your own, something's wrong. But if you're humble before God and you trust Jesus Christ, what category would you say, God, I'm okay here, I don't need your help? There's not a category. We need His rescuing grace, His delivering grace, His help, His strength. Without Him, we can do nothing, Jesus says. So what do you think God is saying about this help meet? What category is your wife not to help you in? There's not one. There is not a category of your existence where you can say to your wife, hey, I don't need your help here. She can speak into your life in every single category of your existence. Because that's what the word help meet implies that corresponds to Adam. So that's the first answer as to why it's not good for Adam to be alone. The second answer that God gives to Adam being alone is marriage itself. Verse 21, God responded and He caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, very literally He did this, He made a woman and brought her unto the man. Now listen to Adam's interpretation of what God just did. Verse 23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto what? His wife. Adam's interpretation of what God just did in bringing Eve to him was marriage. He calls her a wife. A wife. Now, presumably no rings were exchanged. There was no invitations going out. There's no one to invite on the planet. And there's no reception and food that follows. Unless you want to say, go to the garden, pick some fruit. It's really good. But there is a vow that's exchanged. And Jesus tells us in the Gospels what the vow is. What God has joined together, let no man cut asunder. Marriage is to one woman, one man for life. Life. Except in the rare exceptions that God gives when a marriage can be dissolved. Rare. There's only a couple. Young people, are you going into the marriage with mindset? God created it and it's for a life. Because marriage is not about staying in love, is it? It's about keeping your covenant, your commitment to God through His help and through His grace. So when Adam interprets what God has done in alleviating this problem, this dilemma that Adam is alone and that's not good, what does God do? He creates a help meet for him. He gives him a wife. That's the second answer. But the third answer really sums up the purpose, design, and really what the wife is helping, what her submission is doing in bringing all of her help to the man. And I'm taking this again from verse 24. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be 
one flesh. One flesh. Now, Adam doesn't have a mother or father here, right? God is his father, but he doesn't have a mother or father. So, obviously, what he's saying is not just for himself and for Eve. He's speaking to future generations. Because everybody after Adam has what? A mother and a father. These two people don't have one. So in marriage, a man is to leave his, his mother and his father, which means he leaves one family and establishes his own. So in the very technical sense, your married children are not part of your family anymore. Now I know we say that and that's okay, but you need to think of them as a separate unit, a separate family. Because they're leaving for that purpose, to be married. And then Adam says, the answer to God's question or statement, it is not good for Adam to be alone, is answered with joining, cleaving, one flesh relationship. Now what is that? When something is joined, it's united. And when something is united, it's when two things come together to share a common goal and a common purpose. Now this gets to the essence of why God designed marriage. This answers the question, why was it not good for Adam to be alone? Because Adam can't do something alone that marriage is going to help him do. Now, some people call this complementarianism. Kind of a big word we don't use very much. As I said last Sunday, it's compliment with an E, not an I. Now, if you want to compliment your husband, you can, but that's not what this word means. It means to bring something to something else in a way to enhance it, to improve it, or to bring it to completion. Adam is incomplete with regard to the purpose of marriage that God had designed. He can't do it. He can't complete the picture. Now think of complementarianism, which means when two things come together to, to form something more complete, think of it as complementary goods. Maybe you haven't heard of that expression, but it's products that come together and enhance each other. For example, when you buy a washer, what do you buy? A dryer, right? I mean, I guess you could make it without a dryer if you had an old clothesline, and you could make it without a washer. If you had a dryer, you'd have to wash them in the tub or something else. But these two things enhance one another. And when you go to the store and you buy cereal, what do you buy? Milk. Because they enhance one another. They go together. And when you go to the store, in my family, you don't ever go to the store and get tortilla chips and forget the salsa. <laughs> Better not do that. You go back to the store. Why? I mean, who eats tortilla chips by themselves? It's not good for tortilla chips to be alone. Do you get it? It's not good for Adam to be alone because by himself, he cannot complete the picture. He cannot fulfill God's design that he gave for marriage. Now we're going to fast forward to the New Testament and we're going to see what Paul does in un unpacking what this means in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, which we read this morning, Paul is going to explain something that was mysterious in Galatians chapter 2, because that's what he says. Something was unknown when God inspired Moses to write those words about marriage. Something was unknown until Paul 
explained it in Ephesians 5. So let's see what that is. I'm going to read beginning in verse 25. Just start 25 and I go down to verse 32. So listen to these words again. He's speaking now to husbands. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. He sacrificed Himself for it. That He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. That He might present it to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish before Him. So ought men, 28, verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, his body. None of you men hate your body. What do you do? You feed it. You put clothes on it. When it's cold, you put a jacket on. When it's hot, you put shorts on. No man ever yet hated his own body. But he nourishes and cherishes his own body, which he's to do to his wife. And the example here, even as the Lord does to the church. Now I'm in verse 30. Because, two reasons here. Now Paul has just established, he's talking about the Lord to the church. And then he gives two reasons. Verse 30, because we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. All right, now Paul has just quoted... Genesis 2.23. But he, he records it a little different. In Genesis 2, Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In Ephesians 5.30, Paul says, we are members of his body, his flesh, his bones. Who are the we? The church or the bride of Christ. Who is the he? The husband or the Lord of the church. What kind of union is this? It is spiritual union by faith in Jesus Christ. We are connected to Jesus by faith. As God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and out of that sleep, He created and brought a bride to Adam named Eve. God's judgment fell on Christ and produced the deep sleep of the crucifixion. And what emerged out of His death is the relationship that commenced at His resurrection, according to Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1, the relationship of Christ the husband to the church which is the bride. So what Paul is talking about here is Jesus to church, and he's going to connect it with Adam, husbands to wives. Now here's the next verse. For this cause, now he quotes Genesis 2.24, based on this union this being united to Christ by faith, the result is a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And then Paul says, this is a great mystery in verse 32, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now what does that mean? That means that when God inspired Moses to write what he did, Adam's words there, there was something that pre-existed marriage and a relationship between a husband and a wife. What had existed all eternity in the mind and purpose of God? It was the relationship of Jesus, the head, the husband, to the bride, the church, because we were placed in Him before the foundation of the world. The crucifixion 
is what secured the salvation of His bride and what emerged out of His crucifixion is that Christ made Him to be head over the church, which is His body, for which we are united in loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, what Paul is saying, when he says this one flesh, this united relationship, this goal of marriage is to reflect, to showcase, to put on display something about the love of Christ to the church and the submission of the church to Christ. Now with that in mind, look at verse 22 again. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. You see what Paul's doing? Wives, you get your example of what role you play in marriage from the church. And what does the church do? It comes under submission to the loving headship of Jesus Christ. All right, now think again about verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved His bride. And what's Paul saying? Husbands, you take your cue, you get your example of your role in marriage is to take loving leadership by loving your wife sacrificially, giving yourself for her and to her in leading her. And a relationship that's designed to reflect, according to Paul, Something about Jesus and His bride. Now that transforms why and how we do marriage. And what is at the center then of the relationship of Jesus to His bride? What would you say is at the focal point of that relationship that we're to showcase to the world? Is it that marriage makes you happy? I don't think so. The divorce rate tells us that. If marriage was an end in itself, designed to to bring fulfillment and happiness, why are so many people unhappy? Because that's not the design of marriage. Young person, if you're going into marriage thinking that man is going to make you happy, that woman is going to make you happy, you are setting your marriage up for failure because God didn't design for people to make you happy. What did He design? What is the focal point of marriage? What we're putting on display is the all-satisfying, redeeming love of Jesus that is being shared between a husband and wife. As they enjoy and they are satisfied with the aroma of God's redeeming love and Christ at the center, what happens? The woman comes under loving leadership and the husband leads in love And now they're complementary. They're doing something together that one person can't do. They're reflecting a relationship between Christ and the church as they come together, taking on two different assigned roles that God has given. And in those roles, we are seeking to reflect and display and to showcase the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. So that what's making us happy is not the marriage, it's the Savior. And when the Savior is the one that's bringing that fulfillment, then the marriage becomes fulfilling. Because we're not bringing our self-centered, self-gratifying, self-centered, self-seeking ways to the marriage. We all still struggle with that, don't we? 
we're bringing the love of Christ to one another. And when you bring your loving leadership of Christ, your wife, she finds fulfillment because it's Christ's love. And when you bring your submission to your husband in helping him and being the help that he needs to complete the picture, then what he's seeing, what he's experiencing is the redeeming love of Christ. And God is exalted. Jesus is supreme. And the world sees something in a relationship that they look at and say, that's so passe, that's so ancient, that's so unfulfilling, because they don't know Jesus. But if you do, then there's no greater fulfillment, wives, than to come under and take on voluntarily the role that Jesus has assigned to you. And husbands, to voluntarily take on the role that God has assigned for you in loving leadership. And then finally, one other thing, and we'll close here, that we need to make the point about submission is that submission is not based on competency. It's based on a role that God has assigned to you. And I think all the men here would amen that. It's not about your ability, wives, because we know your ability in many ways is superior to men. Who would argue that? It's based on design and purpose and God's assignment of a role. It's not your qualifications. Qualifications is something that means you have a set of skills that make you uh, capable of doing a job. That's not the reason God is calling you to voluntarily be submissive. It has nothing to do with performance. It has nothing to do with qualification. It has everything to do with God's assignment. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll use this text to bring this to conclusion. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is making it clear. He's using it in the context of roles of women in the church. He's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy, and he's telling Timothy how he ought to behave himself, how the church should function, which is the the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You can find that in 1 Timothy 3.15. In that context, he speaks to men in chapter 2, and then he speaks to women, and this is what he says. I'm in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. All right, there's the word subjection again. Now, what is Paul saying? In the context of the church, the woman is to learn in silence with all subjection. Does that mean when you walk in the church, be quiet? No, because this is not the church, right? The building is not the church. <clears throat> now, he's going to answer what he means in the next question, in the next verse. Before we go there, Sisters, I want you to understand you're to be theologians. You are to be theologians. You're to learn. Theologian is not a position. It means the study of theology, the study of theos, the word of theos, or God. You are to be a theologian and learn about God. And there's nothing in your capacity to understand that makes you inferior to men. Nothing! Because you have the Holy Spirit. You have the gifts of the Spirit. So I encourage you, sisters, to be theologians. And in fact, some of the best theologians I've ever met. And I'm not just trying to be funny or trying to make a point. It's, it's been women. In terms of their wisdom and application of what the Word of God says, I have found some sisters well, to be superior to my own. Put it that way. And that, that's not a big thing, but... Be theologians. So what does Paul mean when he says to learn in silence with all subjection? 
Next verse. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man but to be in silence. Here's what Paul's saying. In the church, God has not assigned the role of pastor, teacher, or elder to women. He's not saying don't, don't say anything. He's not even saying be silent to, to share your wisdom with a man. You know, if, you, if you're... If you're sharing in the context of the church some of your wisdom and then a man is listening, you're not usurping authority over him. It's when you're in a position of teaching God's Word and His authority that you're coming in authority over the man that God says that's not His role for women in the church. Role of women in the church is a glorious role. <clears throat> there is teaching that women do. But in the church, Paul is saying, when it comes to being in subjection and silence, what he's saying is, you're not to be teaching other men. You're not to take on those roles. Now the question then, <clears throat> that you want to ask me is, why? That seems so otherworldly. That seems so out of touch. That seems so passe and so ancient. And it must be that uh, Paul thinks women just don't have the capacity uh, to be pastor teacher. Well, he's going to settle that answer right here. Why, Paul, do you say that? Here's the reason. There's two reasons. <clears throat> Verse 13. Because Adam was first formed in Eve. Now, how is that for a reason? There is absolutely nothing there that has anything to do with capacity to learn, to understand, or even ability to teach. There surely are women that are far superior in teaching than men. That's not the point. Why, Paul, are you saying that women should not take on positions of pastoring and elders in the church because Adam was created first and then Eve? Case closed. Somebody says, well, that was a cultural issue. Tell me what culture existed when Adam was created. There wasn't a culture. It had nothing to do with culture. It had everything to do with God's design and purpose. And so if we humble ourselves... We say, dear sisters, it's not based on your capacity or ability. You, you surpass us in many ways. It's simply owing to God says, I created Adam first to reflect something in the order here, and you came second. Therefore, in the church and in the family, the wife is to take the role of being under that leadership, not because of ability. I've said that and repeated it, and I want to say it again. Not because of your ability. And men, you should never reflect anything to the contrary. As if somehow because you're a man, you're su superior. I mean, isn't that the word of our culture? Yeah. Supremacy, supremacy, male supremacy. And we're, we're scratching our heads. You know, For the Christian, we are not supreme over sisters. We are created equal in the eyes of God and we have equal salvation. It's simply the order of creation that God says, I want the man to take the lead. That's it. The second one he said, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. That's the second reason. Now somebody says, oh, the woman is more vulnerable to deception. Maybe, maybe not. Men, how vulnerable are you in a position of leadership? Statistics say, statistics say, that more men are on drugs than women. And that more men are watching pornography than women. Yeah. 
How vulnerable is that to destroy and ruin a church and a marriage? If that's what you're doing going into marriage, you're going to destroy a marriage. Don't get married until you repent. Men are just as vulnerable in different ways. So what is Adam saying here? I think he's connected with the verse before it. Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. You know why? Who did the serpent talk to? He spoke to the woman. Where was Adam? Was he out in the garden picking fruit? No, he's standing right beside her. She took the fruit and did eat and gave it to her husband, which was with her. He's listening to everything the serpent is saying, but the serpent attacks the order of creation. And so when it says Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived is because serpent went after the woman. He never spoke one word to Adam. Now we could say Adam was just a blockhead, I guess, right? He knew what the commandment was. So what's the point? Whenever we reverse God's order of leadership in family, in the church, and even in society, what happens? It brings ruin and destruction. You know why? Because women are just inferior and they don't have the capability? No, because God has assigned the role of men and the role of women in the Christian home and in the church. When we go against it, like the serpent attacked on purpose God's design, what happens? It subverts the whole household because it's not God's design. Beloved, we need to understand what biblical manhood and biblical womanhood is because our culture is confused. They're no longer looking to the objective reality of biology and the Word of God to determine what a gender is. And we need to speak lovingly, graciously, the truth of God's Word and say without equivocation, this is what it means to be a biblical man and this is what it means to be a biblical woman. A preacher's wife has been quoted as saying about men, she would say, and this is, I read this, she said, if a man-eating lion was loosed upon America, he would starve to death. Well, why? Because there are no men left in our culture. And what is a man? He's a man that loves like Christ. He's being conformed to the image of Christ. And he's coming under the lordship of Christ. Christ is the man of men. And what was the focal point of his manhood? He loved, he loved, he loved. So men, we need to be men by trusting, treasuring, and coming under the lordship of Christ. And women need to be women, not a different kind of man. You don't need to be a different kind of man. You need to be God's woman. And so submission is helping your husband, and submission is not based on your capacity or your ability. You have wonderful gifts. You have great wisdom. And you're created in the image of God. And you have great value in the kingdom of God in society. So see your value in Christ. And when you voluntarily take this role in marriage, assume that responsibility for the preeminence and the glory of Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word corrects us. It rebukes us. It, it adjusts our thinking, Lord. We would all be lost without the Word. We would all do marriage the way we want, according to our impulses, our whims, what we think it ought to be. 
And Lord, you've rescued us from darkness and you brought us into your marvelous light. You've rescued us from total, complete self-centeredness and brought us into the light of Christ's love that we could see his love and know it. And then to take on that love and to see it reflected in the relationship that you've ordained called marriage. So bless us as men, Lord, whether single men or married men, that we would be God's man, that we would understand biblical manhood and have loving affection and grace and, and display that love to the world. And bless the sisters here, Lord, whether single or married, to be in the role that you've assigned and to come into marriage with the idea that Christ fulfills, Christ satisfies, and that taking on that submissive role is not demeaning. It is not because the sister is lesser inferior. It's because God has lovingly designed marriage and and called women to come voluntarily under Christ's lordship and help their husbands with all their wisdom, all their skill, all their creativity, all that they are in Christ. And may marriage shine brightly in a world of confusion and display the redeeming love of Jesus Christ toward lost sinners, that they may be redeemed and that Christ may be valued